Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. An update on the raid of former President Trump's home. Today, the public may find out what's in the affidavit that justified the search warrant. The judge who authorized the warrant is deciding whether to release the affidavit. A district attorney in Georgia is using a subpoena to make the governor testify about the 2020 presidential election. The governor has now filed a motion trying to quash the subpoena. New York City is struggling to deal with the number of illegal immigrants being bussed in from the Texas border. A leaked email shows resources are slim. A doctor from Texas says things don't add up in the way the monkeypox virus emerged this year. He says there are unnatural irregularities in the strain's evolution. The judge who approved the Mar-a-Lago search warrant is now considering whether to release the affidavit used to justify the warrant. Media outlets and others have asked the court to make it public, but the Justice Department wants to keep that information under wraps. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. The legal fight to release more information on last week's Mar-a-Lago raid is at a crossroads. The DOJ wants to keep secret certain details. Prosecutors say it reveal highly sensitive information about witnesses and serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation. The judge plans to hear arguments Thursday and decide whether to release those details. In particular, the affidavit that lays out why investigators obtained the search warrant. The raid was seemingly about securing presidential records and classified documents for the National Archives. But Trump says he's been cooperating with them and there is no need for the raid. It's raised questions whether the search was politically motivated and whether the Biden DOJ was going after a potential 2024 opponent. Legal experts say the DOJ should make some effort to be transparent. Media outlets have asked the judge to unseal the affidavit. Former President Trump also wants it to be made public. One of his lawyers, Alina Haba, told Fox News Wednesday she doesn't think the judge will do it. Don't forget Judge Reinhardt is the same magistrate judge that recused himself from my Hillary case about a month ago. So while I would love to see it and understand why you would ask for a raid with a cooperating president, do I believe that this judge is going to reveal it? No, I do not. Meanwhile, America First Legal is demanding that the DOJ release video from the raid. It filed a Freedom of Information Act request Tuesday. In the announcement, it said the raw video footage and audio recordings that were taken during the raid may be the American people's best chance to know about the DOJ's and the FBI's conduct during the raid. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A district attorney in Georgia is using a subpoena to make the governor testify about the 2020 presidential election. The governor has now filed a motion trying to quash the subpoena. He's also accusing the DA of purposely pressuring him amid the 2020 midterms. Here's that story. Georgia's Fulton County District Attorney is investigating possible attempts to disrupt the lawful administration of the 2020 presidential election in the state of Georgia. The DA says she wants to know more about a phone call between Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and then-President Donald Trump. Governor Kemp's office says he previously agreed to a voluntary interview with the attorney. The governor's office says when they asked reasonable questions of the district attorney's office regarding the scope of that interview, the DA's office unilaterally canceled the interview and issued the subpoena. They say it's unclear why the DA's office acted so abruptly. In the subpoena, the DA's office writes, this letter continues our commitment to accommodate the governor and his schedule. 
The subpoena issued by the DA's office now asks Kemp to testify before a grand jury on Thursday morning. But Kemp's office filed a motion against the subpoena on Wednesday, saying Georgia's courts have no authority to compel a sitting governor to provide testimony about matters involving his official duties due to sovereign immunity. The motion also states that the DA has been investigating the events surrounding the 2020 election for at least a year and a half, and that the governor tried to engage with the DA's office and to provide it with relevant information. Kemp's lawyers allege that the DA is now purposely trying to pressure the governor near the 2022 midterms. NTD reached out to the Fulton County DA's office for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. When contacted by CNN, the office declined to comment on the issue. Rudy Giuliani has just fulfilled his subpoena in the same investigation. He's back in New York after spending hours before the special grand jury that's investigating attempts to influence the 2020 election in Georgia. Giuliani was able to say very little about the case. The district attorney said at the end, Mr. Giuliani has satisfied his obligation under the subpoena. So I was very happy that I satisfied my obligation. But you feel like well. you feel like you won't have to go back. They told you. They said I satisfied my obligation under the subpoena. So that's what it usually means. Yeah. The former New York mayor and attorney for then President Donald Trump was in a wheelchair when he arrived at the airport. He was traveling with his lawyer, Robert Costello. Giuliani entered the courthouse Wednesday morning and told reporters at the time he couldn't talk about his testimony. He similarly had little to say upon his return to New York. He did tell a reporter that he just got in stints put in and also he'll be in a wheelchair for the next month or so. Costello said the questioning lasted from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. with a half hour for lunch. A top executive at former President Trump's family business pleaded guilty this morning to evading taxes, and he's agreed to testify at the upcoming trial of the Trump Organization. Alan Weisselberg pleaded guilty to all 15 of the charges he faced in the case. He admitted taking over $1.7 million worth of untaxed perks, including school tuition for his grandchildren, free rent for a Manhattan apartment, and lease payments for a luxury car, and explicitly keeping some off the books. A judge sentenced Weisselberg to five months incarceration at New York City's Rikers Island jail complex, but he may be eligible for release much earlier for good behavior. The judge said Weisselberg will have to pay nearly $2 million in taxes, penalties, and interest. Weisselberg said nothing as he left the court. A trial for the Trump Organization is planned for October. As part of his plea bargain, Weisselberg has agreed to testify. Trump himself is not charged in the case. And monkeypox is spreading in the U.S. According to an American doctor, something doesn't add up in the way the virus emerged this year. Here's that story. Dr. Saeed Hader of Austin, Texas, told the Epic Times that a few months before the COVID-19 outbreak, officials conducted a virus simulation which set the tone for government response worldwide. Hader says various nations follow the recommendations that were developed during that tabletop exercise in terms of lockdowns and masks and how to deal with misinformation online. In March of 2021, a similar tabletop exercise was held to prepare for a hypothetical bioengineered version of monkeypox. In the simulation, the disease would be released to the world on May 15, 2022 by a terrorist group as a weapon. Hader says the bizarre thing is the actual outbreak started within a day or two of the date predicted in the tabletop exercise. The tabletop exercise was held by the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Their homepage's FAQ reads, isn't it a strange coincidence that your exercise simulated a monkeypox outbreak and the world is now experiencing one? Their response is, the risks posed by monkeypox have been well documented for years. 
and that Nigeria has been experiencing a monkeypox outbreak since 2017 with 218 cases. In 2021, monkeypox cases were also identified in the United Kingdom and the United States. They also state that they have no reason to believe that the current real-life outbreak involves an engineered pathogen. However, Dr. Hayter says there are signs that the current strain of monkeypox might be engineered. He says the monkeypox virus mutates very slowly and that the last known precursor to this variant is so different that it could not have happened naturally. According to Hayter, there just wasn't enough time for natural evolution to create the variant spreading right now. The CDC is searching for the source of an E. coli outbreak. So far, 29 people in Michigan and Ohio have confirmed infections. Nine of them have been hospitalized. The illnesses began between July 26th and August 6th. Genetic markers on the bacteria show all the patients likely got sick from eating the same food. The CDC is advising anyone with symptoms to call their health care provider and write down what they ate in the previous week. And New York City is having a difficult time dealing with the influx of illegal immigrants being sent from Texas. On Wednesday, the city received the largest daily number of them. Here are the details. Four buses carrying around 140 illegal immigrants captured at the Texas-Mexico border arrived in New York City Wednesday morning. This is the largest daily number of illegal immigrants arriving in the city since Texas Governor Greg Abbott began busing them to Democrat-run sanctuary cities. But New York City is here to welcome people, provide them the support that they need, and uh, support them as they arrive, especially the most innocent children, families, those who are unaware why they've been brought to New York City. But a leaked email dated July 28th showed that the city is struggling with the situation on the ground. The email sent from New York City's Human Resources Administration and obtained by the Epic Times urged all staff who can work overtime to do so, to deal with a, quote, drastic influx of asylum seekers. One of the illegal immigrants who arrived on Wednesday described her journey. Catastrophic, really. I was in danger of losing my baby in Mexico. It was really hard because we also didn't get any help. Here, yes, I am being helped in the hospital by immigration, but when I was sent here, I have not received help, absolutely nothing, medications more than anything. The executive director of a soup kitchens network describes the difficulties they are dealing with. The challenge was that we didn't think there were going to be so many children. So at the end, uh, many children still didn't, ha- didn't get shoes, but the idea was to do the basic triage when people come off the bus and the only thing is what they have was what they're wearing and they're wearing very little so they should have something to get them to the next step get them to where they need to go the texas governor has already sent away over 6,000 illegal immigrants since april customs and border protection reports nearly 900,000 encounters at the southern border between april and july The 9-11 Tribute Museum in Manhattan is closing its doors for good. The museum hasn't been generating enough revenue to stay alive. The museum was often confused with the National 9-11 Museum at Ground Zero. The Tribute Museum was located in Lower Manhattan, close to where the Twin Towers once stood. It shut down on Wednesday. It was dedicated to preserving the memory of the September 11th attacks. The museum offered tours that were guided by volunteers who had lost a family member or were connected in some other way to the terrorist attacks. It now has to close its doors for good after financial hardships caused by the lockdown in New York. However, you'll still be able to visit the museum online. 
And coming up, schools across the U.S. are regarding students' emotional health as a central concern. Experts say lockdowns and distance learning during the pandemic are still affecting mental health. And families are facing the rising costs of back-to-school supplies, but despite inflation, parents are willing to sacrifice for their children's education. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. The largest school district in California is missing students. Now officials and staff are taking an active approach to bring them back. Last week, the superintendent went out to encourage children to return to in-person learning. The biggest school district in the state is missing students. In response, Los Angeles Unified Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, along with 600 school officials, went door to door looking for those students. Uh, today is a all hands on deck, whatever it takes approach to deal with attendance issues, but also uh, to identify the lost children of LA. While students are not missing from home, they are missing from the classroom. Last year, about 50% of students in the district were flagged as chronically absent. That there are thousands of kids we thought had left the community, had not enrolled in school, but in fact are in our community. They just disengaged, they disconnected, they fell off the radar. So today we are targeting on a priority basis students who demonstrated a chronic absenteeism last year. Carvalho spoke to multiple children, encouraging them to return to school. Several of the students commented on the impacts of online learning. First, I didn't kind of really learn anything. I learned a few things, but this, this time I might learn something. Question. What grade are you going to go into? Can I come? This year. I think you're going to go probably into third grade. The children expressed mixed excitement at the thought of returning to in-person learning. I'm very excited but also nervous because like meeting new people and teachers just gets me nervous. LAUSD is the second largest district in the nation, serving 600,000 students. Class for the district began on Monday. As kids prepare to go back to school, most of them won't have to deal with pandemic restrictions anymore. But the era of masks and distance learning is still impacting them emotionally. Schools are rolling out new measures to cope with the situation. Fourth grader Leah Rainey's day at school began with an emotional check-in. Responding to an online inquiry about her state of mind, she chose silly. I said that I was feeling silly because I is the second day of school and I love school so much. Lakewood Elementary in Kentucky is one of the thousands of schools across the country using the program to check in with students. Well, this provided just again an opportunity for those maybe shy and quiet kids who needed to talk, who need to reach out, who are experiencing things that we have no idea that they're feeling. Over in California, an artist is putting the finishing touches on a giant sunrise mural for a well-spaced room at Irvine's University High School. The room features potted succulents, jute rugs, and a hanging egg chair evoking a relaxed feel. These are spaces of calm that we can provide those um, in bed students having healthy stress management strategies so that they can reset, recenter, and kind of refocus. The same well-spaced rooms are going into all 17 middle and high schools in the district. 
And across New Hampshire, more than 1,000 teachers have taken stress management training courses this year. They're learning how to deal with burnout and to bring therapeutic techniques to their classes. Sessions include breath work and movements like clapping hands or snapping fingers. You can then take these skills and these strategies, even though they might sound silly, the breathing and the rhythm sticks, but it makes a huge difference and it can train your brain to think differently. And I think we all need that. Teachers say they're seeing behavioral changes in the classroom and are trying to learn strategies to help. Experts say the pandemic has magnified the mental health vulnerability of America's youth, accompanied by a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicidal intent. According to a CDC report, more than 40% of high school students experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the pandemic. With inflation still high, the list of back-to-school supplies is costing families more this year. The higher prices can cause stress for parents and for educators who want students to feel prepared and confident in the classroom. Volunteers for the nonprofit Northern Virginia Family Service packing up hundreds of backpacks for a new school year as inflation takes a toll on family budgets. You have food that costs more and gas prices that are on the rise and you still have to pay rent and perhaps purchase medication, so on and so forth. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the price of apparel is up 5.1% over the last 12 months. Education books and supplies up 3.1%. Stationery up 11% like notebooks and paper. Still, after two school years interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, one expert says most parents and caregivers are willing to spend. Consumers really view this season as an essential category, regardless of what's going on with the economy. The National Retail Federation said more than a third of consumers surveyed for its annual back to school report were willing to cut other spending to cover the cost of items for the school year. Shoppers have tried to ease costs, NRF says, by starting earlier to spread spending out and avoid any supply shortages. Inside this high school gymnasium in Prince George's County, Maryland, the school district is preparing more than 10 10,000 backpacks to give away at drive-up events. You need crayons, you need pencils, you need ink pens, you need paper. That's what we've been able to do with our partnerships. For families with more than one student, even small price increases can make a big difference in the cost of getting everyone ready. But so can drives like these with organizations willing to help. A Californian man convicted of a mass kidnapping decades ago is about to get out of prison. 70-year-old Frederick Woods helped kidnap 26 children on a school bus and its driver back in 1976. Together with brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld, the trio forced their captives into a van buried underground in a remote quarry. They then demanded a $5 million ransom. The victims managed to dig their way out after several hours. None of them suffered physical harm, but many report psychological trauma from the experience. California's parole board approved Woods' release from prison Tuesday. It will occur at an undisclosed time. Richard Schoenfeld was released from prison in 2012, and his brother James walked free in 2015. An $18 million settlement over a tragic death. It's going to the parents of an 8-year-old boy who died after falling out of a chair in class five years ago. Moises Murillo had Down syndrome, and according to the lawsuit, he was left unsupervised on May 31, 2017. He then fell backwards, striking his head on the floor and fracturing his neck. 
It says the boy was taken out of his special adaptive stroller by staff and strapped to a school chair. Court papers say he went into cardiac arrest and was taken to a hospital where he died days later of spinal cord trauma. The lawsuit said the district did not have a policy in place to supervise adequately students with special needs like Moises. District officials didn't immediately return a call for comment. The family filed the lawsuit in Los Angeles County Superior Court in 2018. A hotel that inspired a classic movie was destroyed in a fire. The building was part of a long-closed luxury resort in New York. Numerous fire departments from the area responded to the blaze, but it burned through a three-and-a-half-story Grossinger's Hotel. The former 812-acre resort is about 80 miles north of New York City. It attracted hundreds of thousands of vacationers for years after World War II and is said to have inspired the classic 1987 movie Dirty Dancing. After the fire was extinguished, an excavator knocked the building down. The cause of the fire has not been determined. Grossinger's operated for nearly 70 years before closing in 1986, suffering the fate of many local hotels after the region's appeal faded. The site fell into disrepair. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, dueling military exercises taking place on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Tensions continue to build between Taiwan and China. And Washington's number one national security threat, is it China? We look at new data on the U.S. stance. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Welcome back. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Commander Admiral John Aquilino spoke in Indonesia warning about China's growing military and nuclear arsenal. He spoke after China opposed the AUKUS deal between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, which arms the Pacific nation with nuclear-powered submarines. Beijing says the defense pact poses risks of nuclear proliferation. I wanted to learn more about this, so I spoke with a retired U.S. Marine colonel who is an expert on Asian affairs. Joining us now to discuss China's military buildup is Grant Newsham, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Great to have you on today, Grant. Well, glad to be here. Thanks very much. Can you think of any justification for China to be rolling out what Commander Aquilino calls the largest military buildup in history since World War II? No. Uh, China doesn't face any enemies. There's nobody who's ever called for attacking China. In fact, there's never been a country that is more welcomed into the, the civilized a community of nations. And that's been going on for 50 years. Uh, China's been accommodated on every front uh, in hopes that it would become sort of like a big Canada, a nice, responsible, um, sort of liberal, uh, peaceful country. Uh, It really doesn't need a military like it has. It's building it up for one purpose or maybe more purposes, but none of them are good. Commander Aquilino is raising the alarm about China's growing nuclear arsenal. In your view, could the U.S. be heading into a nuclear arms race with China? Oh, I think we are. It's uh, the Chinese have um, really made it clear that they're going to vastly increase the size of their nuclear arsenal. Uh, It was already at least a few hundred. It might have even been bigger than that. Uh, U.S. experts have been sort of off on most of their estimates of what China was capable of, but they've... uh, made it clear that they're going to build a lot of them. I think the estimates now are to have about 1,000 
uh, at least by 2030. Uh, so they say this is part of the, the overall Chinese military buildup, and it is a big cause for concern, but it's just one cause of concern among several. You mentioned that China has no justification for this. How has the AUKUS defense pact shaped Beijing's military decisions? Oh, it's more used as an excuse. And what you're talking about is AUKUS, is the, the U.S., Australia, uh, Britain, uh, getting together to cooperate to get Australian nuclear submarines and also cooperate on missile and other technology developments. Uh, but it, AUKUS shows that within the, the free nations of the region, it's possible to get together uh, and to defend the free world's interests. Uh, there's also the so-called Quad uh, between Japan, the U.S., Australia, and India, which uh, offers similar opportunities along those lines, once again, of the democracies cooperating uh, and bringing together other countries that want to be free of Chinese domination. And can you give us a little bit more insight into exactly how China's military buildup will affect Taiwan's sovereignty? Well, the buildup has uh, gotten to the point where the military overmatch between China and Taiwan is huge. Uh, the Chinese military is, uh, in some cases, it's a match for the United States, and in some cases, it's more than a match for the United States. That's how good their overall uh, buildup has been. It is the, the biggest, fastest buildup uh, since World War II, I would say, in history, uh, and that is not uh, hyperbole. Uh, they have an impressive military. It's not perfect. It has a lot of room for improvement. Uh, the United States still has a, a powerful military as well. Uh, would give the Chinese all they could handle, at least for a few more years. But Taiwan itself uh, is overmatched. So Taiwan absolutely has to have uh, American support, Japanese support, Australian support. And what do you think the U.S. should do in response to this buildup? I would you'd cut the Chinese off from U.S. dollars. Uh, oppose real uh, limits on U.S. business investing in China, uh, and get involved in the propaganda war. We never speak up for ourselves. We don't challenge Chinese lies. The military part of it is relatively easy. You need more ships. You need more long-range weapons. Uh, and you may need to make sure that, that you can uh, really cause the Chinese so much trouble they won't dare do anything. Uh, additionally, put pressure on the top 500,000 Chinese Communist Party leaders seize their bank accounts, cancel their green cards, their and their relatives, make the pressure on them personal. Uh, so those are some things that I would do. Very important topic. Grant Newsham, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you. Tensions continue to build up between China and Taiwan after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island earlier this month. Now both sides are conducting military exercises. Here are the details. Taiwan began military drills on Wednesday in response to ongoing aggression by Chinese Communist forces over the past two weeks. The Chinese regime has continuously launched missiles over Taiwan and sent aircraft into the sky around the island since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan on August 2nd. The tension uh, between the Taiwan Strait is getting higher and it's obvious in knowing that. And, but that's still what we're training for and it's what we're preparing for. So they come and uh, we rise and so our scramble jet will never stop and uh, we will stop their uh, offender and in outside our uh, defense identity, uh, in outside our ADIZ. 
As part of the drill, Taiwanese F-16 fighter jets roared into the night sky in front of the media. A spokesperson for Taiwan's defense ministry condemned Communist China's recent military provocations, but said they provide an opportunity for Taiwan. Maintaining the intensity of our combat readiness training and ensuring the task of combat training is our responsibility. So the actions taken by the Chinese communists is a very good training opportunity for us, and we will seize this opportunity to test all the training we normally do, and through this, improve our current methods and raise our combat effectiveness. The Chinese communist regime claims Taiwan as part of its territory and has vowed to take it over by force. Democratic Taiwan is self-governed and has never been controlled by communist China. Trade data from the U.S. Commerce Department suggests Washington's tech curbs on Beijing may not be as effective as expected. Here's a look at why. Based on trade data, the U.S. Commerce Department approves almost all tech exports requests to China. Sales of certain critical technologies to the country have also seen an increase. Worth noting, only half of 1% of exports to China require a license, and nearly 95% of that half percent get approved. Most are high-tech exports. Because of that, the U.S. is still shipping technology over to Beijing. And some of those goods, like microchips in aircraft parts, may be helping China boost its military. But a top defense expert didn't seem to take issue with the export situation. The Pentagon's former top China export controls analyst said he had no problem trading with or feeding China. Though he added he had, quote, a huge problem with arming China. Washington has applied export controls and sanctions to curb Beijing's technological expansion. Earlier this month, President Biden signed legislation to invest over $50 billion in U.S.-based semiconductor production. Likewise, the Commerce Department says it's working with the defense, state and energy departments to manage long-term strategic competition with Beijing. Back in 2018, Congress passed the Export Control Reform Act. The rule was meant to keep a tighter grip on new technology, but critics say the progress has been slow. What's more, Congress no longer regulates other kinds of technology, like those needed to manufacture microchips. A United Nations report says Beijing imported nearly triple the amount of that kind of equipment from the U.S. in just four years' time. But that's not the only issue. According to a former senior commerce official, the lack of inspections on the Chinese side is also to blame. She explains that once the U.S. issues a license, it loses virtually all control over if or how the technology gets diverted. Taking a closer look at U.S. regulations, even though there are license requirements for some Chinese companies on exports, U.S. companies can still sell tech to them by simply making products outside the U.S. The family of a U.S. Navy officer imprisoned in Japan due to a fatal car crash is calling on President Biden to intervene. Lieutenant Ridge Alconis was sentenced to three years in a Japanese prison in October. Alconis was driving down Mount Fuji with his family on May 29, 2021, when he fell unconscious behind the wheel. A Navy investigation concluded that it happened because Alconis suffered from acute mountain sickness. An 85-year-old woman and her 54-year-old son-in-law died in the accident. Alconis appealed, but his sentence was upheld last month. On Wednesday, Alconis's family rallied outside the White House to protest his detention. And coming up, a dairy farm in Ukraine's Donbas region struggles to survive. The war is disrupting the supply chain and landmines are endangering farm workers. And as Germany struggles with high energy costs, the residents in one area are finding creative ways to get around it. Find out what they're doing in just a minute. 
Russian tourists are taking advantage of the heat and sun to enjoy summer vacations in Crimea. Many say they are not worried by the blasts that rocked nearby military bases earlier in the week. Tourists interviewed in a Crimean beach and city and at the main train station in the Crimean capital said they were focused on having a good time. Crimea is the region that was annexed from Ukraine by Russia in 2014. It has always been a popular destination for vacationers. Russia blamed saboteurs for orchestrating a series of explosions at an ammunition depot in Crimea. Last week, blasts ripped through an airbase, which Moscow at the time said was caused by an accident. Adults and children splashed in the water and laid on the beach. In the background, a Russian warship could be seen. At one point, a military helicopter flew low overhead. In the region's capital, a steady stream of trains arrived with tourists from across Russia. And Russia is bringing back its Stalin-era Mother Heroine Award in an attempt to fight the country's demographic crisis. The decree signed Monday by Russian President Vladimir Putin awards the equivalent of around 17,000 U.S. dollars to women who have given birth to at least 10 children once all of them make it to age one. The Mother Heroine Award was begun by Stalin after World War II when the Soviet population dropped by 42 million people. Russia has lost about 86,000 residents per month from January through May this year. The country has also lost an unconfirmed amount of people in their invasion of Ukraine. A farm in Ukraine-controlled territory in the Donbass region is struggling to survive. With landmines in their fields, it's too risky to harvest wheat, and the farm is producing less milk as the war disrupts its supply chain. And today's John D. has the story. Set in the rolling hills of the embattled Donetsk province, this farm is one of the last working dairy farms in Ukrainian-controlled territory in the eastern Donbass region. Before the war, the 8,000-acre farm had 63 employees. Now only around a third remain. Revenues have dropped sixfold since Russian forces launched their offensive to seize the Donbass. This milker said she can't leave, as her mother and grandmother are living there. I feel sorry for the cows. I wish everything could be better, just as before and all people would have their jobs. This farm worker said the fighting is so loud they can hear it and sometimes there are jets flying over the farm. Our job is everything to us. If there were no farming, there would be no work. There is no public transport or buses around. You just can't go and find a new job, even if you want to. A significant proportion of the farm's revenues once came from cultivating wheat, but to continue that work is risky. The farm's senior livestock technician said when a farm employee was harvesting wheat, the machine hit two landmines resulting in a fire that burnt more than 60% of the worker's body. The worker survived, but is in a critical condition. An emergency services team found 19 more mines in the field. If there will be a further escalation of the war in our region, we will be obliged to evacuate, sell our cows and close the farm. Russia's attack has disrupted demand as most residents in Kramatorsk, the provisional capital of Donetsk province, have evacuated. Several other cities where the farm had distributed its milk have been captured by Russian forces. Our further perspective is unclear because if Kramatorsk will be evacuated, there will be no market for us. Just no consumers will be obliged to evacuate the farm. Of all the myriad challenges facing the farm, Khrushchenko said the most difficult part has been saying goodbye to colleagues who had invested so much in its success. 
He even had to fire his wife from her role on the farm due to cutbacks. John D, NTD News. As German citizens worry about rising energy costs and supply shortages, one village is finding its own solutions. Almost all residents will join a wood chip heating network powered with leftover wood from the nearby forest. NTD's Eddie Aitken has the details. In this small village in northeastern Germany, the latest chat is all about the community's solution to the rising energy costs and gas shortages. A wood chip heating network. All across Gedobain, pipes protrude from excavation pits everywhere. Last year, the local forest owner offered all approximately 100 villagers to connect them to his wood chip boilers. Almost all of them accepted the offer. We were actually in favor of it right away. Now when we hear the news, gas is getting more expensive. You don't know how much gas will arrive. So this is a good solution. The idea has gone down very well, so almost the whole village is taking part, and the village community is growing together as a result. We are really happy about that. Wunder Ostensaken has enough wood to spare on his 150 hectares of forest. We sowed the beech logs for timber, but we collected the branches and the treetop wood and it is piled up here behind us. It gets chipped and is then used as a heat source in the wood chip heating system. This deceased beech tree has to be felled for safety reasons. The trunk is hollow because of a pest infestation and can also be used for fuel. The wood chips can be created directly on site while well, thick trunks have to be transported to a large stationary chipper. Wunder Ostensaken said he could have found a less costly solution for his family's needs than a local heating network, but he would not have felt comfortable being part of the village community. I feel that we all have a duty to do what we can in our own communities if we all want to contribute to stop climate change. The local mayor says they didn't look at the saving potential per se, as the 30-year-old heating system and a tenement had to be replaced anyway. Oil is not getting any cheaper. We knew that beforehand. And 15,000 litres is quickly used up a year. And with the alternative, we actually have a solution. The heating material is practically around the corner. It is indigenous, it grows back, and then we decided to use it. The plan is that the customers of the local heating network will pay 10 pence per kilowatt hour for the next five years. After that, prices will be adapted to reflect the cost of the operation and will not be tied to fluctuating energy prices. If everything goes well, the boilers can be fired up in October. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, rice production in Italy's Po River Valley is under severe threat from drought, hot weather, and aquifer use, and increased salt content is killing off plants. And Spanish cities face wild boar invasions. The animals started to become a problem during pandemic lockdowns and now won't leave residential areas. Find out how locals are coping in just a minute here on NTD News. Good to have you back. Ominous warnings carved on boulders along the Rhine River in Germany are peeking out of the water. It's a result of the drought currently affecting large parts of Europe. 
The so-called hunger stones are a warning and reminder of the hardships peoples faced during the former droughts. The stones also indicate bad harvests, interrupted river navigation, and consequent famine. Many such stones can be found along the riverbanks with people's names engraved next to the date of the drought. Weeks of baking temperatures and scant rainfall have drained Germany's largest river. It's also Germany's main commercial route. The result is shipping delays and high freight costs. Water levels on Wednesday were close to the record lows during the last comparable drought in 2018. And rice production in Italy's Po River Valley is under severe threat from drought, hot weather, and aquifer use. Farmers say harvests of the rice used for risotto could be damaged for years by the increased salt content in the earth. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The amount of water entering the delta from the Po River is at an all-time low, and increased salt content is killing off plants. Grower Elisa Moretto hopes they can salvage one-third of their crop this year. The problem is not only in the short term, so not just the salty water, the lack of harvest and what you can see in the background. But a big problem of ours is also that if salt remains on the soil, we risk also losing future harvests. Because a salty field doesn't yield, it burns any kind of plant and crops sown. Rodolfo Laurenti is deputy director of the Po Delta Drainage Consortium. He's measuring the salinity of the water in the river. It's way above what is suitable for agriculture. In this moment, we are recording the value of 21 grams of salt per liter of water. This value is really high and is not suitable for water distribution in agriculture since the maximum limit is one gram of salt per liter. Deltas are by definition an area of exchange between fresh and salt water. But the movement is becoming more and more one directional. Salt water is moving further inland than ever recorded and seeping into aquifers. In the estuary zones, the salt wedge has always gone up and down. In the 50s and 60s, it only went up and down 2-3 kilometers. But in the 80s, it went up 10 kilometers. Today, we found the salt wedge at 38 kilometers. So it is a problem which has worsened over time. Last month, Italy's agriculture minister warned parliament that a third of Italy's agricultural production was at risk because of drought and poor water infrastructure, and that the situation is only going to get worse in years to come. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Large groups of wild boars are now a common sight in some Spanish cities. Authorities say they have no option but to capture and put them down. That's because they pose a danger to humans. They may be queued up close, but Spain is warning its residents to stay away from wild boars. There's been an increase of boar incidents across the country, 1,200 in Barcelona alone last year. And last month, a girl outside the city was sent to the hospital after a run-in with one of the animals. Residents say they're a nuisance. They eat from the trash, and tourists that come for excursions feed them, and that's the problem. So they stop being wild animals, and they are camping here just like cats. I'm not afraid of them because this is my defense. This is the only thing that will make them leave. It's not a new problem in Spain, but it worsened during the pandemic, with boars moving into quiet urban areas in lockdowns. Authorities say the boars are too used to scavenging to be released back into the wild, so they have no choice but to put them down. Using nets to capture, sedate, and then euthanize the boars. 
he doesn't feel stimuli from the outside. That's the worst part of our job. Veterinary tech Carlos Conejero is in charge of a boar control program in Barcelona. No veterinarian likes to kill animals. I mean, it's something that we don't like. We shouldn't do it. I mean, if we would have the social factors controlled and environmental factors controlled, this wouldn't be needed. Dead boars are studied for diseases and food habits. But Conejero says simply culling the boars won't be enough to solve the problem. Apart from capturing the animals, Barcelona's plan also includes securing trash bins, finding residents who feed them, and social awareness campaigns. Spain's Hunting Resources Research Institute estimates that the wild boar population will spike past 2 million next year. Still to come, artists decorate a giant flower petal carpet on the stones of the Grand Place in Brussels. This year marks the event's 50th anniversary. See it for yourself when we come back here at NTD News. Every two years, artists decorate a giant flower carpet on the stones of Brussels' UNESCO-recognized Grand Place. This year marks the event's 50th anniversary. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Hundreds of colorful flowers lie on the historical Grand Place in the center of Brussels. Mexican artist Rue Aguilar Aguado and Belgian artist Kuhn Vandenbusch collaborated for the 2022 flower carpet. It was a creative process between the two of us. We speak different languages, but in ephemeral art, our language was the sketches, the drawings, the colors. More than 100 volunteers assembled the carpet in just under six hours. Uh, there are architects who made the design, uh, and uh, they make it uh, up front. And now we are uh, making the colors, uh, placing the colors uh, from the boxes, uh, uh, following the architects to see which color we need to p uh, put where. Volunteers began working on the flower arrangements early to avoid the city's high temperatures, as another heat wave hit most of Europe. But the sun and the heat makes it a little bit more difficult, but it's okay. We have uh, a lot of water and uh, we take a little bit more rest and for the rest we go on, flower by flower. The flowers were also carefully considered to ensure they could withstand the heat. Regarding the flower carpet, we took three measures. First, we work mainly with begonias. We increased our use of dahlias, which are like big sponges full of water and will last better. And we are also using plants that are in pots, making them more resistant to the heat. And a lot of naturally colored bark that does not require any water. Aguado explains she's happy with how the flower carpet turned out. I think we are used to working with different climates, with rain, with sun, with air, with everything. So we always adapt to the situation at the time. But I think the sun on this occasion is good because it makes the colors look more vivid, more cheerful. So it was an incredible contrast. There were no shadows, so the sun helped us a lot. To minimize its carbon footprint, the flowers are sourced nearby. The flower carpet only lasts for four days. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A 16-year-old elephant in Pakistan is headed to the dentist. The animal is finally getting relief through a unique standing sedation. That's after suffering for years from a dental infection and pain caused by a broken tusk. 
Madubala is one of four African elephants being treated at a zoo in Karachi, Pakistan, and an eight-member team from global animal welfare group Four Paws is taking on the task. Their visit follows a court order to assess animal health after local animal rights activists raise concerns in court. For the procedure, Madubala's eyes were taped shut and her legs were tied to side grills to support her during sedation. The veterinarians had to use drills and other heavy surgical tools to extract the infected tusk, which came out in bits and pieces. During the five to six hour procedure, Madubala did not put out much resistance. She was kept sedated, yet standing, a procedure seen as less risky than a sleeping sedation. Cops usually have a prime suspect. In this case, it's a primate suspect. The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office believes it was a little capuchin monkey that called 911 from a zoo last Saturday night. The call disconnected, and dispatchers tried to call and text back, but there was no response, so deputies went in to investigate. The address turned out to be a zoo, but the deputies found that no one there made the call. They finally deduced that a capuchin monkey named Rout had apparently picked up a cell phone from a golf cart. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.